We're going to be preaching from 2 Kings chapter 18, which speaks of some of the tests that God brings uh, into our lives. 2 Kings chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. Now it came to pass in the third year of Hosea, the son of Elah, king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah, and he did what was right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father David had done. He removed the high places and broke the sacred pillars, cut down the wooden image and broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made, for until those days the children of Israel burned incense to it and called it Nehushtan. He trusted in the Lord God of Israel so that after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor who were before him. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept his commandments, which the Lord had commanded Moses. The Lord was with him. He prospered wherever he went, and he rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. He subdued the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory from watchtower to fortified city. Amen. Father, we thank you for this, your word, and it is our desire as we measure our lives against the benchmarks in this passage uh, to keep tuning up our lives and, and uh, uh, keep adjusting them so that we can enter more and more into your blessings. We love you, we bless you, we're grateful for your word, and we continue to worship you as we hear it. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, we've just come off of a full day uh, of looking at leadership principles and the exciting uh, task that we as parents have of raising up a whole generation of leaders. And I want to look at six benchmarks that can measure the success of a leader. Actually, they can measure the success of anyone, but I think it's a fitting conclusion to this conference. And uh, verses 1 through 3 of this chapter we see a general evaluation of the life of uh, Hezekiah. And I think as we read this again, you're going to have to admit his life was a stunning success when measured against these six benchmarks. So let's begin again, verses 1 through 3. It came to pass in the third year of Hosea, the son of Elah, king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned... 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah, and he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father David uh, had done. Uh, he was a good king, a king like David, and verses 4 through 8 show why he was measured by God as being an upright king. Sometimes they called him good kings. And it wasn't because he was sinless. David was not sinless. We've definitely been seeing that. But it was because, like David, his life measured up, for the most part, to these six benchmarks that we're going to be examining for ourselves. And the first benchmark was the integrity check. Uh, and this test is about doing the right thing, even when it was inconvenient. Now, you examine the whole life of Hezekiah, not just this passage, and you'll see that he faced... Uh, most of the integrity checks, all but one that I could find, most of the integrity checks the first time that he met them. 
And uh, it, it really is remarkable. Now, if you look in your uh, bulletin's uh, footnote, I d define an integrity check as a special test which God uses to evaluate intent. It reveals the heart. And let me just try to illustrate this. Matthew Ropp confessed that he had failed an integrity check, at least the first time round. He repented of it very quickly and uh, as a result was strengthened through that. But what had happened was that he had bought a very expensive uh, program uh, from an online discount store. And um, uh, one of the rules was that you could not return it. But the problem was when he received it, it was a Mac program and was could not run, obviously, on his uh, Windows machine. And when he called them up, they wouldn't return it. Uh, he, it was his mistake. It wasn't their mistake uh, that he had made it. It was shrink-wrapped, so he took it to a local uh, software store to see if they might exchange it. But as he's walking into the store, he's getting a little bit nervous, you know, that if he tells them he bought it from an online discount store, that they're not going to trade it in. So without even thinking, he... Uh, uh, lied. He basically said, you know, I got this as a present. I don't know what store the people bought it from, and I was wondering if you would exchange it. And they were willing to do that. But as soon as he said that, he realized that he had failed an integrity check that God had put uh, into his life, and he just felt sick about it. Now, they had given him a credit so that when he uh, would come back, uh, I don't know, it was three or four days or something like that, to get his Windows machine. He would just hand the credit in. They'd give him the, the, uh, the new product. Well, he struggled, and he struggled with this. Uh, he just knew that this was not right, but it would be even more embarrassing to tell the manager that he had lied. But he finally decided that he was going to trust the Lord and no matter how hard this was, he was going to do the right thing, which was point number two. And uh, no matter what happened, which is point number four, he was going to follow through on this. So he went into the store and he talked to the manager and he said, look, I'm a Christian and the Lord convicted me that what I said to you was absolutely wrong. I lied. I bought this from an online store and I should not have lied to you. And I'm perfectly prepared to just go ahead and buy the full product from you and just take the loss on this Mac uh, program. Well, the manager says, ah, don't worry about it. I'll exchange it anyway. So Matthew was rejoicing in God's blessing and provision in his life, which is point number five. And every day you're probably going to be faced with some kinds of challenges that are either integrity checks or one of these other trust checks or things like that that are going to test your character. Your character is either going to be growing or it's going to be hardened. It goes one direction or the other, and it will prepare you uh, to be in a position where God can trust you with more blessings and He can trust you uh, with uh, further uh, responsibilities. Now, at the bottom of the sheet, I list seven different types of integrity checks that are very commonly experienced by Christians. Uh, I threw those in there because we're only looking at one integrity check in these verses here, but I want you to be at least aware that there are quite a number of these other integrity checks out there. Matthew Ropp uh, passed the, the first two, and as a result of having failed and going back and doing it right the second time around, he was strengthened in his character to pass any subsequent ones that came up. So God uses even our failures 
to strengthen us and, and, and make us more mature in Christ. So it's not just a, a situation where these are good for us when we pass, even when we fail. God causes us to grow uh, from glory to glory. But this is uh, just being aware of uh, uh, the, the, the fact that God providentially allows these integrity checks into our lives is like a preventative med- a medicine. Uh, too many times we fail because we didn't think about it. We weren't expecting we're blindsided. And so you fathers need to be teaching your children uh, the kinds of integrity checks that they're going to be facing and what to do as preventative medicine so we're not always fixing things after uh, we have a flop. Anyway, let's look at uh, Hezekiah's integrity check in verse 4. He removed the high places, broke the sacred pillars, cut down the wooden images and broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the children of Israel burned incense to it and called it Nehushtan. Now Hezekiah destroyed idols as we must destroy idols. And in this, he wasn't really too different from the uh, good kings that went before him uh, who had destroyed idols as well. But Hezekiah went one step beyond simply destroying the idols. He also got rid of the high places. Now, the reason this was such a difficult test for the previous uh, kings to pass, and they did fail them, uh, was because those high places were dedicated to Jehovah. And they were politically correct, and people really didn't think uh, anything uh, about them. Uh, They were uh, things that people thought were normal and that they were okay. And since the time of David, David was the last one to get rid of high places. Since the time of David, Hezekiah was the first king to get rid of the high places that were dedicated to Jehovah. Uh, Former kings like Jotham and Amaziah saw nothing wrong with worshiping Jehovah in the high places. And over and over in this book, God praises those previous kings. He says, yeah, they were good kings. However, the high places were not removed. They didn't see what the big deal was about that. And I was trying to think, what are some modern analogies, you know, where people tend to be blind about uh, big things, at least things God considers as big. And I thought, well, you know, government schools is a situation like that. There are a lot of uh, mature, godly Christians, wonderful Christians who send their children to government schools and they don't see what the big deal is. In fact, they probably think we're in the wrong. We ought to be sending our children there to be missionaries in the government schools, to be salt and light there. And they don't see what the issues are. And so I I really think they're analogous to the good kings. In many ways, God's praise is upon their lives. And some of them even think we're going overboard when we are being like Hezekiah. And you get a hint of that in verse 22. Uh, People uh, obviously had complained enough about Hezekiah removing these high places that the word, maybe from the captured Jews, had already gotten to Rabshakeh, the, the enemy. So this is Rabshakeh speaking. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord, that's Yahweh, our God, is it not he whose high places and whose altars... Hezekiah has taken away and said to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar in Jerusalem. He's saying, isn't it common knowledge that Hezekiah has been opposing the godly work of other Jews? You know, he's taken down these high places to Jehovah. 
He is being too critical. God's not going to bless that kind of legalism. That's, in effect, uh, what was going on there. And uh, so you can see some of the attitudes of the Jews coming through in that criticism. Sometimes God calls us to destroy sacred cows and to shake up the status quo. Being biblical is not popular today, and the pressure is always on to accommodate those high places, especially if they've been devoted to Jehovah. And when you get criticism from fellow believers or from relatives for your radical biblical stands, it's very easy and tempting to be like those kings of former times and to say, you know, let's just not worry about those high places. They're not that big of a deal. And the vast majority of the church today has failed this particular integrity check. Now, the other thing that was um, highlighted in this verse is the bronze serpent that God had Moses make in the wilderness. Verse 4 says that Hezekiah broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made, for until those days the children of Israel burned incense to it and called it Nehushtan. Nehushtan just means snake uh, or diviner. And here was something that people could point to chapter and verse on for why it was that they were, you know, honoring and looking to this uh, statue. Back in Numbers chapter 21 uh, was the chapter where God asked Moses to make this brazen snake. So it was a good thing, this brazen snake. Uh, There was a judgment. The people had sinned against God. He sent these snakes in there. They were biting people. They were dying left and right. And God, and they cried out to God, Lord, please help us. So God had Moses make the brazen snake. And he said, anybody who looks to that brazen serpent will be healed. And there were some people who wouldn't. They thought, yeah, right. Uh, That's ridiculous to think I'm going to be healed just by looking up at a a brazen serpent. So they died. But the people who looked at the brazen serpent were, were healed. Now, There was no power in the brazen serpent itself. It was simply an act of faith in God. If God tells us to do something, we're going to do it, no matter how silly it may seem uh, to us to do. And those who looked at the snake, uh, they were uh, were healed uh, of their their snake bites. And um, over time, here's what happened. People began to switch from their faith being in God when they looked at that serpent to their faith being in the serpent itself, okay? Their, their faith is not in the giver, but it's in the gift. And in our lives, there may be things that are perfectly good in their own right and in their own place, but which over time rob us of our time, rob us of our devotion, rob us of our passion to God and our focus upon the Lord. And when that happens, we need to get rid of them. Uh, one man told me that, Uh, He had had um, such an idolatrous preoccupation with uh, golf that he gave it up for several months. And it was only after he had aligned his life to the Word and he felt he could have discipline that he began to play golf again uh, occasionally. Now, for you, it may be something else uh, that has uh, become an idol. Uh, It may be, uh, you know, football or... Uh, maybe um, electronic games or wasting unbelievable amounts of time surfing the web, maybe television. But we need to evaluate our lives and say, Lord, is there even a good thing that I am using in a way that it is hindering my vision from being uh, following you wholeheartedly, from being the kind of leader that you want me to be? 
We, we need to have a pursuit in our lives where we are entering into the upward call. And Paul says there are things that are our weights that we have got to get off of us as we're running. And that's basically what he had done. Now, this passage highlights only one integrity check, but I want you to look down at the footnote. And I've decided I'm just going to quickly uh, uh, let you know what these other integrity checks are so that you can instruct your children and you children know uh, what is happening. Now, the first one is just obvious temptation. Temptation tests our moral convictions. Are our moral convictions to please people or to please the Lord? Are our moral convictions uh, there for principle or convenience? And how much are we willing to suffer in order to stand up for our moral convictions? Uh, when we become consistent in passing these, God can trust us with further blessings. Next integrity check is restitution. Restitution tests our honesty. So when you're driving along and you just nick, it's not much of a dent, you nick a parked car, do you report it or do you just drive on? And if you do report it, are you only reporting it because you're wondering if anybody looked out the window and saw you or you're doing it because you love the Lord? Uh, this is a, a, a check that we've got to evaluate our lives on. Uh, when our children break something, do we require restitution to teach them the importance of this integrity check? Now, the person, you know, at whose house you're at may not require restitution, but is it something that you're saying, no, I want my child to be uh, engaged in restitution because he's got to be prepared to face the kind of integrity checks that God uh, might give him? The next integrity check that biblical leadership uh, books talk about is loyalty. Loyalty to imperfect leaders tests our true view of authority. So do we only submit to our husbands when they are perfect? Well, then we've missed this uh, integrity check, haven't we? Do we leave a church when a church is not perfect? See, God is going to bring these kind of tests to see how we handle the imperfections of authorities. And how we handle them is going to show whether we're really being honest about the fact that we're living by grace and we believe in the power of the gospel and we're, we're uh, seeing all of life, including our leaders, through the cross of Christ. The next integrity check is values. When our biblical values are challenged, it is a test of our commitment to our biblical philosophy. So when I've been reading quite a bit about uh, pastors in the last year who are just being hammered by the GLBT and homosexual uh, community, and a lot of these pastors, as they're being hammered, then they soften their message, they soften their uh, approach because of fear. When finances are tight, uh, we might find ourselves softening our philosophy of money. Uh, how strongly do we believe in cleaving to our spouse until death do us part when we're spitting mad, right? And, and what are we modeling to our children when we find something? And we're modeling to them our value of private property when we say finders, keepers, losers, weepers, okay? Tough luck on the other person. Uh, we constantly have challenges to our values that will test whether they really are values or not. The next integrity check is persecution. Persecution tests our steadfastness and per, uh, perseverance. Do we fall apart uh, when we get persecuted? Then there's the integrity check of vision. When our vision is fiercely opposed, 
it tests whether we really believe God has given us this vision or not. We might wonder, boy, is this really something I should be pursuing? Is this, is this a God thing or not? And then the last integrity check is the leadership test. When our leadership is challenged, it tests our willingness to lead the people God has called us to lead and to be accountable to the people that God has called us to. For example, I mentioned yesterday that God called Paul to fix problems in Corinth, but there were people in Corinth uh, who basically told Paul to bug off. We're not interested in your presence here. And Paul, because he was convinced that God had called him to do this, led even when people didn't want him to lead, okay? Uh, a lesser man would have just said, fine, I'm out of here. I'm not going to lead if you don't want me to lead. Now, you can also apply that to you as fathers and to you as, as husbands. Uh, are you willing to lead even when your leadership is challenged? So it's a leadership test. And uh, these integrity checks here uh, are very tough to pass but what God does is he ushers us into even greater blessings, greater responsibilities uh, as we pass them. So teach those checks to your children. Now, the second benchmark by which Hezekiah was measured was trust. And he passed the trust checks that came into his life, even when it might have been easier to negotiate the world's way. Verse 5, he trusted in the Lord God of Israel so that after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor any who were before him. So his trust, doing things God's way, enabled him to live out verse 4. Uh, it enabled him to do the fantastic things that he, we're going to look at in verses 7 through 8. Uh, in fact, um, you start at verse 17 and following. I think it's one of the most marvelous stories in the Bible. Hezekiah is being challenged by Rabshakeh. He said, look it, we're vastly outnumbering you. What are you talking about that you're going to trust in God on this? And Hezekiah is feeling, his senses tell him, it's hopeless. Uh, he looks around him and it does not look like doing things God's way is going to uh, work. But what he does is he says, Lord, it does look hopeless, but you are the God of impossibilities. And he holds up this letter that Rabshakeh had written before the Lord, and he says, I'm going to trust you. And he comes through in flying colors, and in chapter 19, God sends his angel, kills off 185,000 of Sennacherib's troops. And so Hezekiah's trust in God helped him to step out in obedience even when everything was going against him. It didn't look like it was going to work. His trust caused him to go to God and refuse to compromise even if it meant his life. And this is where Job was at. God had taken everything away from Job. And uh, Job so, said, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Even if God kills me, I'm still going to trust him. That's where we need to be. So what things this past year have shown that you trust God? Are there goals that you've set for the coming year uh, that show that you're taking God at his word or are your goals so low that even unbelievers could achieve your goals? See, that's really where faith begins to step in. It's when what we're attempting to do requires God's grace to be able to live out. This is what made uh, the, the people in Hebrews chapter 11 heroes in God's roll call. It's not because they're perfect. Not a one of the people in Hebrews 11 was perfect. A lot of them had huge defects, glaring defects, but they had a faith to trust God 
even when it seemed totally irrational to trust God. They took God at His word. And God is going to be bringing things into our lives that will test our trust. Third benchmark is the consistency check. To what degree do we consistently cleave to God? Verse 6 says, For he held fast to the Lord. Now it's wonderful when people do the right thing the second time around or the third time around. But you know, when you're looking for a computer hard drive, you really want consistent integrity <laughs> to be there. Now we're not machines, and so we're not going to be consistent right off the bat, but our consistency grows over time. I guess a computer is the opposite. It uh, deteriorates <laughs> over time. But we grow into consistency over time by God's grace. That's what we should be shooting for. And God will bring repeats of previous tests because he's trying to develop that consistency in our life. And once we develop a consistency, he no longer tests us with those things. He ushers us into new levels of blessing, new levels of, uh, of responsibility. Now, the phrase held fast is translated elsewhere as to stick to or to cleave to. It's used to refer to our tongue cleaving to the, sticking to the roof of our mouth, clods of dirt sticking together, husband and wife uh, cleaving together. And this is the word that's used by David when it says, my soul follows close to you. So what distinguished Hezekiah as being a man like David is not that he brought so much reform, because there were other kings who brought fantastic reform as well. What distinguished him as being a king just like David was that he kept clinging to the Lord. Do you cling? Do you let, or do you let uh, even little things get between you and the Lord? How consistent are you in your Sabbath keeping? How consistent are you in your family devotions? How consistent are you in prayer? Now, don't get discouraged when you find inconsistencies, just like with your computer. You know, you're doing these benchmark tests, and, oh, I guess we've got to get a little tune-up. And we do the benchmarks in our lives, and we say, okay, thank you, Lord, for showing that to me. I want to be more consistent here. I need your grace, and I'm going to have implement these plans in order to become more consistent. Point four, there will be times when God will show you things that are not comfortable to follow, and yet you will follow and obey anyway. And this is the virtue uh, check. And the reason I call it a virtue check, the, the Greek word for virtue in the New Testament is a word that indicates a predisposition to obey even before you know it, what it is that God wants you to obey. It's a predisposition to follow and obey the Lord. Uh, you're basically writing out a, a blank check to him saying, whatever, Lord, I want to follow after you. And verse 6 shows this uh, benchmark to be true of him. He did not depart from following him, but kept his commandments, which the Lord had commanded Moses. Now, there is a slight difference between following and obeying, even though ultimately they uh, result in the same thing. But to follow indicates a predisposition to go where God wants you to go, to do what God wants you to do, even before you know what it is that he's going to ask you to do. You're just following him, saying, your, whatever, uh, your will be done. I, I want to follow after you. You're willing to find out. On the other hand, obeying is the actual carrying out of that. Now, let me just try to illustrate this uh, virtue thing. And I've told this story to you before, but um, 
When I was in seminary, this is so vivid in my mind, there was a group of us who were discussing a very controversial ethical issue from the Scripture and bringing uh, various points in. And there was a guy who walked in uh, to the room, and as soon as he heard the subject that we were talking about, he put his hands over his ears. He said, I don't even want to hear what you're talking about because then I'll be responsible. And he left. And that is a perfect illustration of the opposite of virtue, okay? Uh, virtue wants to find out God's will. It's willing to sign a, a spiritual check and say, Lord, fill in the mount. I'm, I'm willing to follow. It hungers and thirsts for righteousness. It prays, thy will be done. I've had people tell me about an area. Well, I've discussed with them, you know, what you're talking about really is sin. It's not something that you should justify. And their response to me, believe it or not, is, oh, well, I'm not convicted by the Spirit over that. But they agreed it is a sin. It's in the Bible. But I'm not convicted by the Spirit by that. What they were saying basically is, well, the Holy Spirit hasn't twisted my arm so that I'm crying uncle yet. Okay, that's basically what they were saying. And if you have to be convicted before you're going to follow God's word, you don't have virtue. Virtue is delighted in doing things even before you know that the Holy Spirit is calling you to do it. Now, the next two benchmarks are positives, okay? So we're done with the negative, now we're on to the positive. What positive results have you seen of God's grace in your life? Point five speaks of the Lord's presence and blessing. Verse seven, the Lord was with him. He prospered wherever he went. And this is basically the first C that we looked at yesterday of that union with Christ, empowerment by Christ, knowing his presence uh, in your life. Now, most versions have an and in here, and the Hebrew has an and indicating as a cause and effect uh, it's because of the benchmark tests that he passed earlier that he realized God's presence in his life. The Lord was with him. And that he realized his blessing in his life. He prospered wherever he went. Now, wouldn't that be cool? That no matter where you went, no matter what you did, God prospered what you were doing. Now, that'd be a cool testimony to give. That's the way it was with Joseph. It seemed like his hands had a Midas touch. Everything he touched, God prospered and blessed. Why? Because God was with him. God loved to bless him. And let me tell you something. Over the years of God's dealings in my life, there have been so many times, to my shame, where God has brought a test into my life, and I'm thinking, oh, man, really? Do I really want to do that? That's just so hard. And there have been times I've said, okay, I know it's hard, Lord, but I will do it. But I didn't have the full enthusiasm to do it that I should have. But I've done it, I've passed the test, and the Lord's ushered me into further blessing and uh, uh, further responsibilities, and there's been other times where I've had major setbacks because I've failed to implement those steps. And by the way, even pastors can fail these benchmark uh, tests. <laughs> and what do you do when you fail? You get up, you try again, right? You fix it, you tune it. Do you know God's presence in your life? There are times where I can say absolutely yes throughout the day. I, 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 I have a sense of God's presence with me. And there are other times where I know I need a tune-up in my life. Now, God has promised his presence. For example, in the Great Commission, he says, anybody who's willing to do all of the verses I've talked about, who's willing to embrace the Great Commission, he says, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the earth. But think of it this way. When 
when Joshua went into the land of Canaan, God said, my presence will go before you. So anybody who was willing to follow had God's presence. If you decided, nah, this is kind of tough, I'm going to stay out, out here, you're away from God's presence, right? And so it's in following God, even through the tough tests, that we, uh, that we find the, the presence of God uh, in our lives. The safest place to be is in the center of God's will because God's presence is there. Now, the last benchmark that we can uh, measure our lives by is victory or conquering. Verses 7 through 8 describe Hezekiah's victories. And when Hezekiah went into battle, he was not depending upon his own strength. And I think chapters 18 through 19, you just need to read it later on today. It's a marvelous, marvelous story. But it indicates even the physical battles that he engaged in had a spiritual dimension. There's this invisible angel that's out there killing all of these, uh, these, the, the, these yeah, um, enemies. And uh, that was true of his other uh, battles as well. Verses 7 through 8. The Lord was with him. He prospered wherever he went. And he rebelled against the king of Assyria, did not serve him. He subdued the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory from watchtower to fortified city. So what areas have you conquered for King Jesus in this past week or this past year? If it's none... Now, you might want to make that as a goal. Lord, show me something I can conquer for you. Uh, Something in my life or something in society, give me something I can tackle that requires faith. God gives us grace upon grace because he wants us to grow from power to power, from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of God. And every year, we should be advancing beyond where we have been the previous year. Now, if you don't have concrete measurable goals... You don't know if you've advanced beyond uh, where you were last year, so you need to have goals. But I think this is a marvelous summary of Hezekiah's life, and I hope it challenges you to say, I want to be like Hezekiah for the rest of my life. I want to be a person who's out and out for the Lord. Now, in conclusion, let me remind you of the acronym that I came up with uh, yesterday, Goes Farther. It's leadership that goes farther. And it includes a G, which is growing. Successful leaders will work on themselves and never quit growing. The O is organized. Successful leaders will structure their lives, their time, and their future. In other words, they take dominion of life. They don't let life take dominion of them. They're organized. The E is efficient. And productive. Successful leaders are hard workers. They're hard players. They go the extra mile in everything that they do. Uh, That's absolutely critical. The S is self-controlled. Successful leaders have a balance between enjoying life and deferred gratification. You are not self-controlled if you're a workaholic because you got to have the balance that the Scripture gives. And for me, it takes real self-control to force myself to have some fun because <laughs> I'm such a workaholic. But you're not going to be self-controlled if all you do is fun. You're not doing the hard things. So it, it, it is a balance. Then the F stands for future-oriented. Successful leaders are driven by the future and confidently look for opportunities that God is presenting. The A is ambitious. They don't wait for other people to tell them what to do. Man, they take the initiative. They're out there. They're doing things. 
The R is relational. Even though they might be shy, and there's a lot of great leaders, they're extremely shy, they value people. T is teachable. They are incredibly curious. All successful leaders are incredibly curious. They're constantly learning. In fact, they've dedicated themselves to be lifelong learners. Even at 80, 90, they're still learning. Uh, the, the H is humble. They can roll with the pump punches without getting bent out of shape. The E is enduring. They don't give up easily or get discouraged. And the R is resilient. They have learned how to adapt to ever-changing circumstances and to get back up and try again. And I think that uh, Hezekiah was a leader who goes farther. He had that acronym true of his life. He knew that Christ had given his all, so he was going to give his all to Christ. And we have to be the same. If you're willing to destroy, trust, cleave, follow, and obey, He will be with you. He will bless you. He will lead you into victory. And so I challenge you to be men, women, and children of Hezekiah in this coming year. Amen. Thank you, Father, for the life of Hezekiah. We know that it was done by your grace. But we thank you for the illustration that even imperfect men like Hezekiah can respond by faith to your grace. They can grow and they can be leaders uh, who uh, follow this acronym, goes farther. Father, may it be true of each of us. And may you receive the glory from our lives as we uh, grow more and more consistent in passing these benchmark tests. In Jesus' name, amen.